everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. As always, I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How are y'all doing? I'm very excited to not have to read this again, Spencer. You know, that was my, my follow-up question after you said <laughs> hi, yes. Brimming with excitement, I think. Uh, yeah, th- this is a story that we have threatened previously, that uh, the two more industrious members of this channel have previously read before we did the last few episodes, and uh, lamented the experience of. We're continuing through the forward collection with our next story, Summer Frost, by Blake Crouch. Uh, and I must say that the first time I went through this story, I didn't dislike it. It was on second go-through that that it soured on me. Um, and I think the best way to consume this is while you're paying attention to something else. <laughs> okay. We're, uh, should we treat that as your ini- your initial read, just jumping ahead to that segment? Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, just to introduce the writer, because either, either you read anything by Blake Crouch before, I'd heard of the Wayward Pines trilogy, but I'd never read it. Um, so I actually read Dark Matter. Um, it is a pretty good, or one of the better, uh, airplane books. We, I think we talked about it last time, where there are books that are great to read on airplanes because you're essentially locked in for five, five hours, six hours or whatever from start to finish. Mm -hmm. It's a great, um, and so... I essentially read the entire thing on a flight. It wasn't amazing, wasn't bad. It was a good flight book. Did you buy it in an airport just to complete that, you know, category? Or was it mm, something you already no. had? It was oh, definitely okay. digital, um, but I might have gotten it on Amazon, like, right before I got on the plane or something. <laughs> the purpose of the flight. How about you, Sarah? Were you familiar with Blake Crouchin? No, I had never heard of him before, um, never read anything by him, and am not... <laughs> excited on to doing do so, so. <laughs> doing well, so again he, uh, he, he follows a bit in your footsteps in the sense that he is a university of north carolina graduate as we all are and he has degrees in english and creative writing well listen he put together a good collection here <laughs> <laughs> some credit where it's due uh, uh well, what about th- you, this is one of the students where you would say if you can't do teach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh well, it, in reading through all the reviews that we're going to talk about in a minute, I'm curious to read his other works that people are just gaga about and maybe informing some of their opinions on this story. But no, mm-hmm. I knew nothing about him going in. But, Sarah, on something I hope you enjoyed more than actually reading the story, do you have a drink recommendation before we proceed further? I do, in fact. And so I am continuing along um, with my drinks that have come out of the machine and um, the machine learning AI that has created these six cocktails by, again, um, in ingesting, inputting, uh, I don't know, Death & Co's modern co- uh, classic cocktails with more than 500 recipes, and then um, has kind of reconfigured them into a, a list of six cocktails that I'm slowly making my way through. Um, this week, I am drinking one called a San Cormado which is actually one of the better names that this AI has come up with. That's actually decent. <laughs> it's not it's not bad. And it felt it felt kind of in line with this sort of like California E Silicon Valley E place that we are in this story. Um so that's the one I'm drinking this week. And so it is a cocktail with more ingredients than some of the other ones that I have been dealing with. So it is a couple of strawberries. Um, so we are once again on the sort of red cocktail theme. It, uh, go ahead. I think, are we picking up the computers have favorite colors? Because there's been a trend. <laughs> it it might be. cat pictures. Yes. Red cocktails and cat pictures is, is what we know. So... Um, and so all of this gets muddled together and then shaken over ice um, and strained. So it is four strawberries, two ounces of Calvados, which is um, akin to a cognac. It's a sort of apple brandy. Um, oh. Although it is not unlike champagne, it is one of those things that is supposed to be grown in a very specific region of somewhere to be called Calvados. So I am using apple brandy and not Calvados. <laughs> um, two ounces of that, one ounce of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of grenadine, which is probably really responsible for this red color, Um, a quarter ounce of cinnamon syrup. I am once again using my mulling spices syrup because that's what I have, and a couple of dashes of bitters. And um, again, that's muddled, shaken over ice, and strained into a glass. And I was not sure about this reading the recipe because it seemed like a lot of stuff 
mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily things that I usually like. Um, but? But I will say I didn't really like it on the first couple of sips, but it is kind of growing on me, and I don't think that that's just the, the apple brandy talking. Um <laughs> It has kind of melded a little bit as it has sat here for a while, and the grapefruit particularly is kind of getting along better with the cinnamon syrup than I thought it would. So it's it's not my favorite cocktail, but I, I actually do kind of in, enjoy it. It is not bad. I am not sure that I would choose it necessarily. Um, it is better than expected, we'll say, unlike this story. <laughs> so would your addendum be to actually let it sit for a minute after mixing to improve the overall experience? I actually think so. I also think that it is a drink that, while it should be a little bit chilled, um, should not be ice cold. Mm. Because yeah. I think that that kind of dulls several of the flavors that work better a little more room temperature. In terms of your description, there's other stories we've already read that I fit with, I feel like would fit with this uh, drink better, just based on your description of your experience of it, rather than, <laughs> we needed to find a drink you despised to match this story. That's true. Where is my um, Sambuca? Where did... <laughs> uh, just, just douse your drink with it now. Where did that go? <laughs> uh, also, to answer your question, uh, Calvados is apparently uh, from Normandy in France. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Most of most things that have a specific place that they need to be are French. For I, I figured it would have uh, been France, yeah. or it's either France or like Kentucky, right? Those are our two. <laughs> and Kentucky has released a lot of their death grip, so there's that's that. true. Yes. Um, and speaking of uh, Kentucky releasing their death grip, I also have a cocktail that is probably more um, apropos of this story. Um, and the cocktail I have is in the vein of many of my cocktails. It is uh, whiskey neat, um, but it is a white whiskey from a Maryland distillery. And so it really plays into the story that we're uh, going to be discussing and that it's not very good, but kind of what everybody else is doing and has flavors that really need time to mellow out rather than just be sort of a kick in the face. All and right. it's a white whiskey. <laughs> all right, well, I like it. Uh, I, on the other hand, am drinking water, and that's all I'm drinking. So well, somebody's got to stay lucid for this, because <laughs> I do not want to, Spencer. <laughs> Feel free to make a double now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we so often do in terms of getting your material done early, uh, in terms of the au- other audience's reactions to this story, did they mirror your own, or perhaps is this the single best-reviewed story in the collection? Perhaps, Spencer, perhaps it is the single best-reviewed story in the collection, and it hurts. It hurts, Spencer. Um, so, as as we always do, the, we are going to some outrageous one-star reviews, and we were talking a little bit off-pod. Like, I tend to not want to do the outrageous one-star reviews for stories that I also didn't like because it feels it feels like piling on in the story in a way that is is not overly entertaining but I did want to point out a couple of them um one and two star these come from both one and two star reviews because of all of the things that you could have complained about in this story, and they are many and myriad, and I will complain about most of them over the course of this podcast. <laughs> two, at least two people, before I stopped reading these reviews, complained about something that, small potatoes, let's say, in the grand scheme of the things that are wrong with the story. Um, and as we will get into when we talk about this, like there are some... Um, there, there are some kind of unconventional gender things happening in this story um, that are highlighted in ways that are, like, not always the most fluid, let's say. Uh, but some, some people on the internet have chosen to focus on this fact in ways that I find fascinating. Um, so if I could read you two brief reviews Please. and uh, get your, get your um, reaction to them. And so this one, I am not going to read the whole review... Um, just the second second paragraph of it, and this is the two star, the two star one. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I have to say the female lead that happens to be in a same sex marriage, just shy of in vitro, so she has to adopt an Asia baby, Asia baby, while working with AI that appears more female but requires gender gender neutral pronouns, seems like pandering of the hot button issues. Not a fan, Blake, especially when these items don't contribute to the story in a significant way. BJ. 
Uh, yeah, so <laughs> before the pot, I was going to say if I agreed with some of these. And it is a problem that I have with this story because it, it definitely feels shoehorned. Um, but, like, it's not quite the bent that I would take with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the genderless AI thing makes sense but could have been done way better. And I mm-hmm. guess that's my problem with it. And then um, the same-sex lesbian relationship is, like, it's fine. But, I, like, again, like, I don't think it adds to the story. So my problem with it is, isn't that it's there. It's that... It's it's not doing anything. Yeah, for the and story that would have been. And uh, sorry to um, interrupt, but uh, for me, that would have been the case no matter what kind of what iteration of a relationship we were dealing with in terms of gender. Like it just it was too much in the story. Yeah, to begin and with. I guess it's like, and I guess the the fact that there's a relationship that isn't there other than when it soured. Mm-hmm. Does, doesn't give any of the complexities that you want when there is a relationship in the story. And so everything fell flat about it. And so that it was a, you know, I guess I feel like it's less the case nowadays, but like a non-conforming relationship seems like it was done to check a box rather than for reason. Mm-hmm. So I actually, yeah, I, I don't disagree with actually what... <laughs> this part of the review said. Um, I do think that it's a weird thing to focus on. And so that is why I would like to take you to a one-star review that is about the same thing. And I would like to read you the whole review. Go on. Very slow, dull, fair. Um, early on, it was confusing because the avatar was considered male, but the actual character Riley is female who happens to be in a same gender marriage and describes that she is trying to have a baby with her quote wife, but ends up adopting a baby while working with AI circumstances seem to distract the attention from the AI AI story fair. Maybe this book also needs to be in the gay subcategory so that readers are not taken off guard. (laughs) Got it. Thanks. That's very interesting um so one of the things that i've noticed happens more frequently than i would like is it seems that there are um oh this is gonna sound bad but i'm gonna go with it anyway uh church reading groups that Mm. read things and like have certain prejudices um and then are flabbergasted that like there isn't uh you know uh a warning list for them to avoid it and it's it's just i don't know i find it disappointing that that those those reviews aren't flagged and taken out for just being worthless can i tell you what i find really disappointing please that when looking through the reviews in curious preparation for this podcast that category were the only one and two star reviews they Mm -hmm. were basically all of them repeated yeah over and over again it's like if, if, if that's an issue for your experience of the story, it takes data view, it feels ham-handed, fine. But this, on my list of things to point out that are, you know, ham-handed or disappointing or underwhelming in the story, that's like entry 35 or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, it feels like there's a lot of things to point out before you ever get to that point. And, and the laser focus that some people seem to have on this issue. It... it, it, it <laughs> Compare- so would you say that they're one issue for re- reviewers? <laughs> yeah. What gets annoying is that, and this is kind of similar to the experience I had when I was reviewing Binti, of where when I was looking like other negative reviews to find out where other people were coming from, just you know, conceptualize my own views, I had the unfortunate realization that, okay, my options here are people I don't normally want to associate with in terms of the other negative reviews. <laughs> and no one else. Like, mm-hmm. my, own, my own concerns apparently don't exist. And I, I, we definitely really touched on that with Binti. It's it's like a there are many positives about the story and and some negatives. And it's like it's tough critiquing certain negatives because of like who's writing it and who's who it's written for. And ver- like often we are not those people. And so it's 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 still a criticism, but it's harder to level. But I would I I agree with you as we talked about in Bendy, but like yeah. I don't think that this story was not written to 
in my mind, or if it was, it was certainly not successful at doing so. It's not, it, it does not seem to be written to invite a new readership into sci-fi and fantasy. No, right. Really, I, like this is just bad. I, I think, but I do think, yes. I do think that it is written to cater to a badly, I'll put this in air quotes and I hate using the word woke audience that, that wants to have like a lot of boxes checked rather than a good story. So Spencer, can I ask, because you read, you, you did not limit yourself to just wallowing in the one and two star reviews. You also read some good reviews. Were there people who in the positive reviews of this that appreciated this kind of gender non-conforming issues and relationship, blah, blah, blah. No. Okay. Not re- not really. It was not like the dominant narrative of people that were saying that this book really, you know, speaks to me and my own experiences or this book, you know, mirrors my own experiences in life. It was a lot of comments on this is some of the most poetic literature I've ever read or okay. the characters just leap off the page or it's insightful and startling and Have a they remarkable read twist in else? <laughs> This is what caught me off guard, is that these are not words that I would necessarily use to describe the story, and I did not in any way hate it as much as you did, Sarah. But Um, on on that point, I'm curious. So the people that did not expect the twist need, like, probably are confused by Chubby Checker. (laughs) In terms of, like, two-sentence or whatever else descriptions of what was your experience of the story, I'm curious to hear. BJ, we got an an intro for you. Do you have anything to add in terms of your own experience? Well, I listened to it again, and it was a mistake. Okay. Sarah, how about you? What If you had to summarize what you're feeling right now about this story, how would you express it? Disappointment, Spencer. I don't think that goes far enough. No, I think if we're going for like the, the quick read on how I feel about this story, I tried to read it again today and quit three paragraphs in. You tried to give it a better shake because yes. you hated the narrator yeah so i did i that's a, that's a good point i should clarify like i listened to it the first time around and i think i didn't like the story the first time around but i also really hated the narration that was happening in the audible narration um so i tried i thought okay maybe maybe that was coloring my view so i should go back and just read it and could not do so it, it surprises me in the positive reviews how many praise rosa salazar's narration um, some of them are describing the husky and or sexiness of it. So I don't know that it is all about how she breathes life into the characters. I, I was, I think I told, I think I told you, BJ, I was planning on making breakfast while listening to this story. I got about three minutes into the narration, stopped, and then decided to just hold my Kindle while I made pancakes and just do it that <laughs> way instead. So that was going to be more pleasant. Probably I, a good idea. She, yeah. I mean, she clearly was trying, but it was just that narration was not working for me. So I will make um, at least you, Sarah, feel better. Spencer, you might feel that this is deserved. So there is an app um, called Fake Spot that takes out reviews that it thinks is are fake. Mm. Um, and so once that happens, um, Randomize and Emergency Skin are four out of five stars. Uh, this drops to three and a half, and unfortunately, Arc drops to just under two and a half, which I find Jesus. very interesting. I think uh, I'm. I think I like the just unfiltered reviews better. <laughs> well, I mean, for for me, I would ultimately describe this story as as underwhelming. I didn't hate it, but it felt like it was a it was drawing from other sources and doing a combination of parts that should have made it better. Like, I felt like this was drawing from three different stories, genres that I enjoy, or even just touching on genres that I thought could be very interesting, and bringing them together in a combination that ultimately was just bland. I mean, for people that, various reviews that are saying the characters leapt off the page, I don't know how they're getting that. These characters, to me, were just almost frightfully dull and stilted. I mean, they were probably listening to the audiobook, and so having the characters leap off of the page just is a funny metaphor. (sighs) Possible. I don't think uh, these were all written by you, BJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving them a benefit of my doubt. But I, I, I have a hard time hating the story just because I wasn't invested enough into it to care that much. Well, it then was... you need to read it one more time. 
it, it ultimately felt pretty bland, pretty by the numbers, and pretty much walking tread ground with slight differences to adjust it for a new age. But even I think those have been kind of entertained and explored before by friggin' Asimov as it comes to a lot of this. And I will say, you know, thinking back over this today in preparation for this for this pod, one of the things... And I will, as we go through this, um, if I am not seething in righteous anger, I will tell you some of the things, the specifics that um, really frustrate me about the story. But one of the things I think from the outset that particularly upset me in the experience of listening to this story was that, um, you know, we start out in a particular narrative and... I didn't like that, and I thought that it was bad, and I couldn't figure out why I was reading what I was reading. Turns out that that is, in fact, a a video game, as we will talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once you broke out of that, I was like, oh, well, that was kind of hokey and like a weird way to start the story, but now we're going to get into like an actual narrative that I'll like, and Mm -hmm. we didn't. And so that double disappointment... Compounded what you were feeling when it came to this. Yes, story. yes. The fact that my my hopes were raised again and then dashed against the cliffs under this manner, um, really, really upsetting to me. That's a thing to note there. In terms of titles for stories, this one is the most token I think we've encountered yet. Yep. Or it's the it's the name of the manner in the story and maybe also in real life too that mm-hmm. the you know guy mm-hmm. lives in, mm-hmm. and that's it. It has no other real connection at all to the narrative, to the story, anything else. No. It is a background event that we leave in the first eight pages. We return to at the bitter end where it could have been any place else. It's not symbolic. It's not particularly relevant. And well. that's our title. It's, I mean, it's where she effectively achieved her, you know, uh, con- uh, her uh, awareness of the universe and everything else. I was going to say it's symbolic in the way that, like, wearing a cross symbolizes the you might be Christian, but like it, it it's a, it, it's not subtle. It's not, a, it's not a deep draw. It's not particularly interesting in terms of the crossing of the story. But in terms of let's, you know, we can explore our views and now doing a bit of a recap, which I think we can go through relatively quickly, despite how long this story is, because about the middle 60 pages just kind of goes by. Oh my God, it goes on forever, Spencer. Can you please <laughs> well, make this recap? Well, so I, I think I'm it's very try. funny because... Uh, we were going to talk about dashing your hopes against the rocks um and in the first part of the the book is um so we start out in a video game where we have uh an observer watching a character that we eventually find out is in a video game going against her programming mm-hmm. and the thing that i find very interesting is i liked that setup for playing with AI. I did kind of like that setup, especially because come to find out in the video game, like the character that we're following who is going against her programming is like the most minor of minor characters. She is mm-hmm. a, t- a token. She is the classic woman stuffed in the fridge trope embodied in the video game. Yes. She is yeah. the character that dies to prove that the situation needs attention. And- I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the idea, the idea of that kind of character kind of going against their programming, it almost has that kind of um, like rewritten fairy tale quality to it, just like mm-hmm. as an idea in the world, which I, I kind of like. The problem is that this first section is so badly written, I want to poke my eyes out. It's badly written and it makes the weird decision to have the speaking patterns of the main character AI throughout the first part of the story be stilted and childlike. Mm-hmm. which I didn't feel is necessary anyway, given what you would think would be the already coded knowledge in the character or just in the game itself. But mm-hmm. it's a choice they make, which I found difficult to read and particularly difficult to listen to in the narration. Um, but essentially, like you guys said, there there is this video game. It's kind of like a um, eldritch occult horror kind of video game. The apocalypse is coming. And you get to explore a kind of VR world, this fully realized, like massive full cityscape kind of area. And the most bit character of bit characters has gone off script apparently for months based on the description. And in and, different ways and unique ways. Mm-hmm. And, and so testing the boundaries of the our head programmer yep. is going in there after her to at first just observe her, but then realize that she's actually gone back to the place of her own murder to kill her murderer and is now fleeing off onto the beach. And like you guys, I found this setup had potential. Mm-hmm. This this could have been interesting. This was 
it's you know, I've seen various versions of this before, but it has at least a lot of potential for an interesting story. Very quickly, though, we leave this setting of where she pursues them, she basically captures them by kind of tricking tricking them or convincing them to follow her, and now said uh, AI is moved into a black box for about the next 70-80% of this story, where the objective of this computer game company is now, is now, upon realizing that they've essentially accidentally made a true AI, is to feed it all the information in the world with the apparent intention to make it a benevolent super genius to essentially kind of serve as a replacement god for humanity. And that's kind of where we go as she proceeds to try to teach and educate this AI, which rapidly outstrips her intelligence, not only just about the operation of the world and human knowledge and human experience, but also, well, operation of the world and human knowledge, but also human experience, human emotions, human needs, to try to instill a sense of empathy in what she's just kind of casually accepting is going to be a device that could easily eradicate all of mankind if it goes wrong. And of the best idea that they possibly can have is to give it human values is to upload them somehow, put the AI in a, a, a facsimile robot as best they can um, that, that is as human as possible so it can experience the world in a human way because then it clearly will have human values because that's how things work. And so in addition to like that being crazy, BJ, as I, <laughs> as I glean from your tone of voice when discussing it, in addition to that being crazy, what bothers me about all of that information, which we get kind of sporadically throughout this story, is that it is the very worst of what I hated about melancholy elephants. <laughs> I mean, there are just these like long diatribes and exposition about kind of what AI is and what they're doing with it. Um, that are all just a sort of like, let me tell you what's going on here. It's similar to the, for in my mind, similar to a lot of the complaints that we had about randomize as well. Yeah. Um, so that they are I not think... seamlessly interwoven in or sort of shown in some sort of emotive, evocative way, but are simply talked about I think in very stilted ways. My most, f the thing that frustrates the most about this and certain movies that deal with the same concept is that they're also doing a bad job. Like it's also kind of wrong. Whereas like, I'm pretty sure randomize as far as I understand the science is pretty much correct. And melancholy mm -hmm. elephants was talking about a real issue. It was kind of more of an essay and, you know, but it was <laughs> kind of? dealing with a valid subject mm -hmm. Sure. where as this, this is dealing with, a thought experiment and then going into the specific like programming things along with this thought experiment that don't mean anything it's it's techno babble in ways that that are completely unnecessary and aren't as entertaining as it is like on star trek where it's just entertaining fluff this is like the meat of the story mm -hmm. that ends up being kind of just techno babble and I think that that happens both with the kind of technical aspects of what is purportedly going on here, as well as the philosophical underpinnings, right? Which is the place where you really could have mm, developed an actual narrative around it instead of right. having characters discussing the philosophical underpinnings of what is going on. Right. And this was the opportunity in this middle part of the story, because this middle part of the story is, this is a this is a novella in its own right, in terms of how much time we spent. We spend in story like 10 years with these two together. Yes. Yep. Going through the process of instilling knowledge, of slowly trying to build a human connection, of ultimately falling in love with your own essentially daughter AI, creepy, um, and where that relationship goes and develops. And that's a lot of time that you could use to do a lot of things that I feel the author wastes. I mean, they, Especially, they, go ahead. I was going to say the author just like decides to go with like the AI has a concept of self and it's essentially human and pretty much everybody accepts it kind of immediately without batting an eye, which is a, a, an avenue that can be interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sort of like talks about talking about 
whether like their the value system that they're uploading which they talk about so much like is a meaning like doesn't even deal with it is it a meaningful thing but is it like the ai is either going to be good or bad and we kind of have a coin flip and whatever and so the the author seems to have taken like the two main avenues where there's pro there's stuff to explore that not everybody has trodden on kind of tossed them out the window in favor of and this is this is sort of where i fall in the category of agreeing with some one of the one star reviews that i hate that i sort of am in that camp of having like a weird non-binary love relationship triangle with this thing that you've been spending a lot of time with and And Sorry, Excuse go me. ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, it's not... I am not mad at the idea of um, Riley, our, our main programmer, sort of falling in love with the AI. And yes, it's well-trodden ground, and we've seen it in many, many stories before. But, like, that seems that seems fine. It could work. It, it, it could, could work. It could work. I, it is not well done here, but it, yeah. it could work. I'm not super mad at that. But the auxiliary of Riley's previous, uh, you know, marriage um, and adopting a daughter and doing all of these sorts of things. Like, what is it even doing there? And what at least is it the didn't purpose? try for a threesome. That's true. That would have been, that would have thrown us into a different genre, I believe. <laughs> what it's trying to do is give us something that is really necessary to the story is someone to question the stupid decisions of the main character. It's someone to acknowledge in story that the main character is going down a dangerous path. Because if you're going in that direction, you kind of have to have somebody that foreshadows that and develops that point to a certain degree. I think the problem that... here is that it is so token to the story. But there is... are two. Yeah. There are two the people that are doing it. It's her boss. No, he isn't. Like, he keeps saying you're getting too close. Like, they have those things a couple of times, and it's late. But it's very late. I, I yeah. think I think that that would have been a better outlet, honestly. Or just keep it there, yeah. Or like you, you're you're having the wife there as a I'm a functional human being and understand what relationships are. Honestly, it fell really flat um, because. Riley clearly doesn't. Well, I mean, that's the two purposes it serves in the story is to you know add into the tension of are you am I following the right path? Am I making the right choices? Am I dooming humanity? And also the relationship triangle that's forming, which could yeah I've seen that before. It could work. It can add a certain degree of tension or commentary about what a relationship is and how it can develop and what na- what naturally forms between two people, even one when one is effectively artificially simulating human emotion or at least claiming that human emotion is nothing. Uh, that can be an interesting enough story in its own right, but because it's being meshed in with so many other different little tidbits of a story, it's never really given time or any focus. The relationship that the main character has with uh, her spouse never feels real, in part because we never start with it really at a good point. Mm-hmm. We, all, we start with it already failing, and it just continues failing, to the point that I was legitimately surprised they were still together at moments, because I thought prior scenes were them breaking up. I mean... That could have been written very true. It could have, but I think you required a certain degree of investment to make that actually feel real and feel like actual characters interacting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas and the it, only... it immediately undercuts the idea that Riley's wife could have been a kind of mitigating voice of what you're doing is wrong, you're getting in too deep, et cetera, et cetera, because Riley never trusted her. In, in the scope of what we see of their relationship, she doesn't mm-hmm. care about what she has to say. And yeah. so I, we just have this sort of romantic partner on the downslide of a relationship screaming into the void. It doesn't do anything. Right. And it's one of those things where for, for these kind of stories of where the entire point is the scientist going down the dark path and, you know, ultimately with disastrous results. A lot of those are framed of where the dark path or the bad decision is earlier in the story. And then we kind of see the the after effects afterwards and mm-hmm. follow one story, like a classic Frankenstein tale. Fra- Dr. Frankenstein, he's not even doctor, just Frankenstein makes the monster within like the first 30 pages. Mm-hmm. And then af- all the rest of the story is the experience of the monster adjusting into the world and the problems that result in Frankenstein's decisions as a result of that. Or even something like, uh, did you guys see the film a few years back, Splice, which is really a lot of shared moments between these two stories? Mm-mm. No. no. I, I like to do it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
It's not good. I couldn't recommend it. It's, it's more focused on the biological genetic engineering way of doing this rather than AI, but otherwise pretty similar story. But it never hesitates to point out the clear internal flaws or reasons why the main characters are doing dumb things when they're mm-hmm. obviously doing dumb things and they lead to the disastrous end. Whereas here, there's never really given an opportunity to reflect about why the main character is going down the path she necessarily is, because we're fo- so focused just on the interactions between the, t- the her and the AI, or why that could result in the disastrous end that ultimately occurs. If anything, the moments that she even entertains that are almost flippant, like disturbingly flippant. It's that, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this AI could destroy the world, this AI could eradicate all of humanity, I guess we'll just have to make sure it's human and cares about us, rather than the more rational response of, Maybe we should think about ways of shackling it or not keep feeding it data servers so it can keep growing bigger and potentially more threatening. Well, but I wrote a couple of lines of code and it should be fine. Yeah, clearly. That's going to work out great when it can, by your own description, read my face at all times by following me through thousands of cameras throughout the building. The main character frustrates me to no end in the story is that, and I guess some of the other readers of the story frustrate me to no end, is that they can't see the disastrous end of the story coming from a mile away. And, you know, that is, I mean, there is, again, the potential for an interesting commentary on, and and other stories have also done this, but there is the potential for an interesting commentary on um, the kind of lack of awareness that the sort of technically minded people behind a lot of these innovations have about, like, what continued progress actually means. Mm -hmm. Um, that would have been a possibility. The problem is that our main character like doesn't think deeply enough about this no. for that to work. We, mm-hmm. we get we get token mentions. Of, we get token yes. mentions of the of the idea that she's very lonely. That she potentially has you know issues with the fact that she's not bonding with her own daughter. We've got discussion of the idea that she's very much focused on the tech and that it's her sole job and that she's been isolated from anyone else in the other world and in some way begrudges the idea that she's been cut off from the rest of humanity because of that. We get those dropped. Is that the little mentions of, okay, yeah, I need to mention that point and get it in the story. But rather than have them developed and made a central part of the narrative, the story just gets into so many other different directions at all times that it never has time to focus in a way that would make this a more, a more tight and ultimately, in my mind, successful story. So if we were going to, because I feel like we, in, in our conversation, have said a couple of times, like, if the author, if Blake Crouch had chosen to focus on this as the sort of central theme of the story, or the central nugget, then it might have been successful. And we've said that a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, what is, do, what did he focus on? Like, was there... He didn't. What, I, is there any sort of central nugget to this story? I think there's four or five different stories that he's kind of smushed together. He's taken parts of four or five other stories that were probably, or I've even read them, be more successful than ultimately work when you kind of just mix them together. Like the sudden appearance of a thriller story at the very last ten pages. The, you know, the surprising twist that some of these reviews rave about. Just feels so token thrown, thrown in there at the end. It's like, I understand you were building in that direction, but it's still, despite the obvious foreshadowing, still feels just kind of rammed in just because it is the, in addition to a whole other series of stories that don't fit well with And I think that could have been an int- like two interesting parallel, maybe, not really parallel, but like you could have done in about this length two storylines of the AI starts questioning as to why it had to die so many times and like the dissolution of Riley's marriage. Mm-hmm. But, like, I feel like to try and do the dissolution of Riley's marriage and falling in love with the AI and, like, we... And so what fell behind is, like, the motivation of the AI was, like, never... Wasn't clear until we decided that we had to mirror the beginning of the story with the end of the story. Um, And so, like, you... It, it throws a lot, like you can explore certain relationships, but it's kind of like we, we tried to explore so many different relationships and have extraneous characters to certain stories and necessary characters to other stories. And there needs to be some decisions. I mean, as we've said many times before, focus is what m- short stories thrive on. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, you know, I would say that like just thinking about this as a from the 50,000 foot view as a story there aren't that many characters in this story 
got what? Like five? Yeah, it should be. You have the components for a tightly woven narrative. I would argue that the like many page diatribes about what I what consciousness means in an AI that feel unnecessary, overly well trodden, badly written that just cut 75% of that and you could actually like develop the relationships that we have and it might work. Yeah. So one of the things that I think never works is internal thought monologues as a method of conveying information other than the internal state of the character. Mm-hmm. And we get tons of that. And so I th- like the couple of times that we get uh, Riley's interaction with her boss or Riley's interaction with her wife, it's a rehashing of those things and she's already made up her mind rather yeah. than having a dialogue, which might have made this better. Maybe not. I almost feel like that for each of these stories, there was a key element to make it work that was left out. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, for the, for the conspiracy plot to work at the end for the AI turning on humanity, like you said, BJ, we needed to have more lead-in and development of the AI's reasons for doing so. Because the sudden appearance at the end of thought is pain kind of comes out of nowhere. Because yeah. we never really got a chance to get any insight into the AI, despite how much time we spent with they, uh, we never really got a chance to see much inside their head. Uh, we never really got a chance for them to even necessarily speak honestly about any of these concerns or motivations or anything else to really have that appearance of the AI's motivation for wrecking humanity, as much as that end is kind of foreseeable. The rationale wasn't well led into. If this is going to be about a main character bonding with an AI and the development of their relationship and the tensions with their own partner, then you kind of have to actually paint more realistic, well-lived characters than we really get an opportunity here. Like you said, Sarah, we instead get lengthy discussions of feeding an AI information and the response from the AI as a result of it, who's never going to give as much in the way of human connections with another character because they're not responding in a human manner. If anything, are taking a hell of a lot of pains over the course of the story to criticize the idea that there is anything unique about the human experience. If anything, I'd almost say that's the main theme of the story, given how much they continue to return to it, is that human experience is just its own form of simulation and it's in no way unique or special. We get that almost every third page. And... I guess that's one of the issues I have just no ultimately disappointment with the story is that there's a lot of narratives here that could have worked because I've seen them work elsewhere. I've seen the bones of a successful story in there with those. But, you know, the, the author kind of left out the legs to make this story actually be able to successfully move for each of those independent little... So, well, and it goes back a little bit... Go ahead, BJ. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say it goes back to the conversation we were having with the last story, which we described very complimentarily... Very com- mm-hmm. <laughs> with That's compliments. I accept, I accept <laughs> okay, thanks, Spencer. Um, as a meat and potato story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a story that for me has, as we've talked about, about four or five different beginnings of a meat and potato story in it mm-hmm. and just can't do it. It decides it needs to be doing something else, I think, mm-hmm. and continually switches between them. But like we have the beginnings of a whole bunch of stories that could be perfectly serviceable. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is like a you know fairly novice cook that found a bunch of things that they like <laughs> and put them together and thought that would be the best thing ever. And so they have like a bacon and foie gras and butter and caviar sandwich. And it's just like, no, you can't just. But they're all take good things. by themselves. Why wouldn't they be a great hole to get mi- mi- uh, mixed together? Yeah. This is a C-rate gastropub, BJ, I believe is what you're yes. saying. <laughs> Thank you. That, that is the perfect description. And don't forget the truffle oil. Um, but the, we always the, return the, to food when it comes to our reviews <laughs> of these stories. We did, it, we did it before, we did it before with itself. the Hugo. Um, so the movie that this really reminds me of, which I did not like um, much to the chagrin probably of many reviewers and a lot of other people that I know is Ex Machina, which has a lot of very, very, very similar vibes and did one thing that I thought was really interesting and this story didn't, which had the main character questioning his own humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we never get that here. We get the slightest touches of that, as if the AI wants the main character to question her humanity, but she never actually does. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like you're inferior rather than you're not human. 
and eh, whatever. We can get a map. Early on, we actually have the AI say there's a 58% possibility that you're living in a simulation. And we return to, at the end, the idea that effectively the AI is going to make all of reality a simulation to a certain way. But the main character, we, as much as she stresses about her relationships, despite the fact we don't care about it, and I wouldn't even say she necessarily stresses about it much, rather than like, kind of like just implied, most of the actual interactions you have with the AI are moments of stress that are immediately forgotten. Like, mm-hmm. she's briefly creeped out about the fact that the AI is watching her at all times and can call her cell phone. But she immediately brushes those away, despite how those could be a story in their own right. Mm-hmm. And again, just factors into the fact that I just don't find these characters particularly believable. Because they don't, weird way of stating this, but they don't act like humans. Yeah. No, I am like, deeply confused by this main character and her reactions, exactly as you spe- said, Spencer, to all of all of these kind of moments of stress that happen in relation to both her her human relationships as well as her relationship with the AI. So would you feel better about this if it was, if the main character was essentially the stereotypical weird programmer that we had essentially in Randomize? Because honestly, like as I'm thinking about it, that character fits a lot better into this weird main character than a romantically successful in some ways business savvy programmer that's a good question i hmm. i think that would have worked if they made the video game start to the story more of the narrative that sure would i think would have fit into and worked in that setting in terms of interacting with the ai and told that story pretty damn well Um, which is probably why the avatar was male in the video game right yeah because that that works better but I, I don't know. It's still deeply weird. And it's deeply weird. I, I think it would continue to be deeply weird, even with this sort of alternative character that you've proposed, BJ, simply because, simply because there's so little self-reflection on any of it. But I think you can get better lack of self-reflection when that's built into your character rather than not. And I feel like this character was sort of built into and defined as a very different uh, sociable person that then reacted incorrectly to like all of the other outside stimuli. But I think for that to be successful, even if it were a more believable character to be having these reactions, they would have to like do more. Sure. I, because, like, very little happens in all honesty. Like, for 90% yeah, yeah. of the story, still very little happens. And, and that's what kind of that's an interesting point to, to focus on is that the majority of what the main character does in the story is interact with the AI. Mm-hmm. And I think in all of our views, our description of that is not much happens. Yep. Why exactly is that? Because there is a lot of interactions between two characters. That's the bulk of what the story is, is the two main characters interact with each other about the world and the universe and the experience of it. Why does that feel like it's just kind of a void for the middle 80% of this narrative? I think there's no character growth. Yeah, so I agree with that. I also think that it's, uh, they're going through like philosophy 101 class Mm -hmm. and basically doing that in poorly written dialogue. And Mm -hmm. it isn't even really dialogue. It's like inner monologue coupled with you know, a couple back and forths between Riley and the AI. And it's like, okay, that's great. You're like, you're talking about like a brain in a jar simulation and you're not doing a very good job of it. Fine. Um, So I think you, you either need depth and exploration of these things in a conversation and have an AI that doesn't understand it rather than like an AI that basically understands everything and a human that has a mediocre inner monologue about it. Sarah, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, and it is, you know, it is to go back to um, my critiques about, I've forgotten the name of the elephant story again. Melancholy elephants. Melancholy elephants. It does um, it do, I can't get it. Um, the best it's, part it's about the same... it is it's because elephants don't forget. <laughs> um, it, I just delegate these <laughs> memories to to the elephantine memory. Um, 
But I think, you know, these are, they, they're the same kinds of things for me, is that really what Blake Crouch wanted to do here was discuss the kind of moral implication and philosophical implications of having this type of AI that is self-developing um, and continuing to learn and like becoming more human-like as we go mm-hmm. along. Or ultimately superhuman in its own view. Superhuman. And it's thinly veiled in the story. Like, it's just not a story to me. Um, and I think it's precisely because what, what really kind of unveils that as, as true is exactly what you're saying, BJ, about these kind of like weird inner monologues slash conversations um, that are more or less a philosophy class. So when you're taking the uh, measure of this AI, it just doesn't hold up. So yes. what could we do? If we were, if this was the, if this was the initial story, Sarah, you got back in your creative writing class, and they're allowed a second draft. What advice would we give the writer so as to make this an overall more successful short? Please I'm not even see saying me. novella. <laughs> well, I know you have to say something to them, PJ, when you say the "please see me" on their, on yeah. their right, story. Right, but but it's not just <laughs> like written. Like Crash is set down there in front of you. They've come during TA yes. hours. What do <laughs> you say? At that point, what is the advice? I mean. Uh, like I think it's pedagogical. You, you, like you ask them what story they want to tell, because I I think that, and I don't think this is uncommon that that sometimes authors lose sight of stories they want to tell when they have many stories that they want to tell and don't have somebody to ask them and tell them that they they haven't succeeded. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if because he was the person putting together the collection and, you know, who knows about what editing or whatever it underwent, that, that it's just not there. And, and I think you can go from there once once the, once the he figures out what he wants to say. Mm-hmm. I think for me, because there are so many potential plots going on, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and potential directions for those plots to go in this story, none of which are fully realized as it is. My question, because I, I do think you're right, BJ, we are not at a point where we can like give direction. There must be questions asked beforehand. Is actually who who is who do you? I don't even know how to ask this question. Um, who who are you? What character are you most compelled by in this story? Right, that's, that's like a good question to ask. Because we talked in our last episode, um, the last conversation, that we actually found the sort of secondary or second main character of the scientist to be a more kind of compelling off-screen narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, that one happened to kind of work off-screen, like it didn't need to be told from her viewpoint, but it kind of worked that way. Here we have no characters that are convincing or that we care about as we've as we've talked about in this pod. And I don't have a sense of who Blake Crouch cares about in this story. Um, and I think that's the major failing for me. I can put up with some kind of jumbled narratives, um, but I have no one that I as a reader care about, but I also don't even get the sense that Blake Crouch cares about any of these characters. And- we, we talked about how we thought that the last story we went through, whose name is suddenly embarrassingly escaping me. What was the name of the last one? Name the Tullis. Last Conversation. The Last Conversation. Um, that it went on too long. It was, again, a lot of interaction between two characters in a locked room. There's a lot of similarities mm-hmm. between two yep. stories, actually. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's one scene in particular that just embodies how much more successful that story is than this one in getting me to care about where the characters are going and getting me invested in what ultimately is, you know the relationship that they have and a certain element of tragedy that's tied to it is the scene of when we've moved from exploring the main character blank X's memories to then exploring the doctors when we're mm-hmm. seeing a summary of her life and we're suddenly seeing more her reaction to it and the pain of hers and rewatching them over and over and over again. And that moment of when she just kind of plays the last moment they've ever had several times before to the point that they can rue each other. That is an incredibly powerful scene of interacting between two characters that embodies the whole narrative to me. In a way, we never got. Mm-hmm. As much as the two of them interact, it ne- as much as you know, we're trying to get invested in this AI, is honestly the only character that really has an arc in the story, the only character that really grows or develops in a way that ultimately ends humanity, but that's a growth. Um, <laughs> it, it, that make, that, 
In terms of characters making decisions, making choices, going in a direction, acting with agency, who are you going to pick? The, uh, the, uh, the robot or the computer, the AI, or the main character researcher in the story? So I think you only have one reasonable choice there. I, that's certainly true. It is just so poorly written that I don't I know. care. But with how much time you spend between those two characters, the only way that works, the only way I'm going to be invested is if you actually spend the time to develop those characters with their own motivations, their own desires, and how those interact and conflict and everything else. That's how that kind of character-driven narrative works. And it's never really attempted here. And that's a shame, because there's a lot of there's a lot of parts of the story that could be successful if they were just invested in in their own right about what you need to accomplish those. And instead, we just kind of get this just weird buffet. And I find that ultimately more dis- I'm ultimately more disappointed than I am I am angry about this. I think in the end, I dis I ultimately dislike randomized more than I dislike this story. Though I think I find this story ultimately more frustrating. Mm-hmm. So, BJ, you said that you had read a couple of other things by this author, right? Yep. So, and you didn't hate those? I did not. Okay. Um, (laughs) I'm getting to my point. Were they similar? Uh, Yeah, I guess my question is, were those plot-centric stories? That's a fair question. Um, So, it was a little bit more plot and mechanic-centric. Mm-hmm. it was a a weird mechanic that sort of allowed for a character to sort of like plot what they were going to do against outside forces. And so like, I think that internal narrative works better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of like a, you know, somewhere between a puzzle solving slash action slash a couple of other things that where you spend time with a character sort of ends up being a little bit more satisfying than it was here where the character being caught up in in herself and and having sort of that internal dialogue is dissatisfying rather than interesting Mm -hmm. Um, because it isn't like a puzzle to overcome and figuring something out it's just i don't know garbage And part of the reason I ask that is that, you know, at the very beginning of this story and at the very end of this story, like, we do get... The plot moves. Mm-hmm. Plot moves, and we get the classic narrative device of returning to the beginning. Yes. I Which don't we actually had like in the it. last one, too. Th- yeah, that's true. Where we liked it. <laughs> yes. It, it's much more natural and earned there. Here, mm-hmm. yeah. we never... It was never... The, import, the beginning was never made importance enough, important enough for us to ever really to care to return to. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's part, part of the reason, like we talked about with the title, is that the, type, the title is representative of that, but it just feels in the end just kind of token and put on and could have been something entirely different and it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Um, and I guess the... Um, I think that there was a success with that of like an, a character exploring things in, in their own mind that might have bled into this because it, I think, was successful there. I think that there... There are times that authors like, hey, like this worked really well, and I'd like to use that again because I like writing in that style. Mm-hmm. And then it just falls flat when it's different enough that you you can't use the same mechanic. So obviously, all none of us liked this story. Mm-hmm. Not particularly. No. Um, can you whatever medium you listened to all of it in? or read all of it in, consumed all of it in, can you pinpoint the moment at which you decided you were out on this story? That's a fun question. Um, it's hard to pick one of those because it kept on shifting to a different story and me getting hopeful that that one would work. <laughs> it's like, like you, I, I thought I was going to be in the story when I read its paragraph description about what it was. And then I got really quickly out of it in the first nine pages of that because it was, just wasn't that well written. But then we left that entirely, went to an entirely different story, and went, oh, okay, black box interaction, developing of AI, the interaction between the two of them, that could work, let's see where that goes. And then it just didn't stop going for a long time. So, I don't know, it's hard to pick one moment. I felt like I got like three or four of where I got hopeful again, and then it just faded. Gotcha. BJ? So, um, I think the problem that I have is that the, the way that I consumed it the first time, I think is the best way to do it. And I would have rated it a lot higher if I had mm-hmm. rated it after that. 
because I was busy doing lab work and like doing stuff that required enough attention that um like I kind of as you might one might do with with audiobooks like fade in and fade out and I didn't miss anything like like I I paid attention at points where it wasn't feeling like it was rehashed and I was like okay that's what's happening and what I probably did was filled it in with a narrative that seemed reasonable to have gotten to that point that I was happy with and the story makes some vague amount of sense and when it got exciting at the end and and there were a couple of other points that were a little bit more interesting or exciting like I tuned in a little bit more and then then it was done and that was fine um and then I listened to it where I was a captive audience on a road trip and I I was out on two stories about at the same time with her interactions with the AI and her interactions with her wife because I was rooting for her wife to leave and <laughs> the AI to stop talking to her. <laughs> so the worst Fair moments enough. for the main character, those were the moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even like the worst moments because like she was just terrible before that. <laughs> Um, like when it actually came to a head, I was just like, are you going to like, like, thank God, like it it (laughs) took like five years too many or whatever it was for, for her wife to leave her at more than five years, honestly, at that point. Yeah. Is this actually the end? (laughs) And the AI was just like, I'm not getting anything out of this, but I need you to love me because that's the only way that I'm going to get out of my box. In turn, in turn, we've talked before about main characters that are treated shabbily by their authors. I think this one may almost take the cake for how much the story ends up abusing her for the sake of the narrative. She goes through a very rough road before this thing is done. I mean, honestly, like, if she had been taken through, um, you know, some circles of hell, I think it would have been a little bit more interesting treatment because then at least something would have happened. Mm. Speaking of circles of hell, I do have the exact moment when I was out on this story. I'm curious. When was it? Well, and I will say that this was on my second very quickly aborted reading. <laughs> you were out this the first three pages? Oh, Spencer. Oh, Spencer. Oh, God, how fast. I was out in the epigraph of this story. <laughs> I somehow missed it, I think, on my listening to the story. But you see, the epigraph for this story is from Paradise Lost. Oh, it is. And it, it, is. it is the most on-the-nose fucking cliche epigraph that you could have done for this story and it made me so mad this afternoon (laughs) did i request thee maker from my clay to mold me man did i solicit thee from darkness to promote me yeah i read that one a few times before yeah i just i I just can't do we have anything else to say about this story no ultimately this story did not work for us which makes it all the more surprising that we appear to be very much in the minority when it comes to what people has said this is the best reviewed of all the stories in the collection period certainly the best reviewed of the ones we've gone through so far and it's going to be very interesting to look back in retrospect about where our ranking of these stories square for where the majority apparently the readership were. Mm-hmm. because as I said Blake Crouch assembled this he's the one who got all these all these writers to work together and so ultimately we kind of have to view this one as representative of what he wanted the collection to be and that provides an interesting comment about the rest of the stories about whether they were successful and maybe even in his eyes for what he kind of wanted the representative story to be. Well, if you listen to it and didn't like pause it and get out of it immediately after the story finished, you got his thoughts on it. So we will review it at the end. Um, but I feel like we almost have to give Blake Crouch his own segment, given how many times we've now listened to that outro of each of these episodes. Um, so I, I also really wonder how many people listened to it and how many people read it. And I will say that like consuming audiobooks, unless you're doing something that really doesn't require thought, changes how like you can analyze the story if you only listen to it once. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is a it allows authors to do things in mediocrity with some good ideas and succeed whereas 
the written page it is less allowing of that because of the focus that it demands and i'm not sure like i fault them for that but it does make it painful to reconsume well uh for audience members who are looking to reconsume, hopefully will be much more pleasant content, a much more better prepared meal of an experience. Where else can they find those, BJ? Um, God only knows. But we have our own things that you can consume. If they want the Denny's Diner of podcasts, where can they find those, BJ? <laughs> meat and potatoes, uh, Spencer. Meat, meat and, and potatoes. potatoes. We aspire to that. <laughs> Um, so you can find all of our contact on mangumtalks.com where we have a variety of podcasts, including our podcast within a podcast pottering around as well, uh, from, uh, the three of us, as well as a number of other things consisting of the rest of the, uh, Mangum Talks crew, uh, including Mangum Talks TV that I believe is working its way through the second season of Mandalorian. Um, And you can also find us on our Facebook page, which is Mangum Reads on Facebook, and wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, the various sources that you have there. And while the story was not fun to go through again, it's been a lot of fun talking about it with you two. It has indeed. And what are we reading next time? My question I was going to ask, yes. Uh, We are consuming, um, some of us may read and some of us may not, Emergency Skin by N.K. Jameson, who, as we've said quite a number of times, just sort of does things and wins awards. It won the 2020 Hugo Award for Best Novelette. (laughs) And I'm of two minds when it comes to this one, because normally for N.K. Jameson, I would expect I would prefer to read it, because that's how I've done her material before, and it can be kind of dense and I want to unpack it. But it's also narrated by Jason Isaacs, and that just sounds fun. So this may be a twofer in terms of experience. I recommend listening to this one, Spencer. Yep. I will probably it's a good end up listen. doing both. Yes. So. All right. Well, y'all, I'm looking forward to that. I'm curious to see what is her... How many Hugos is this now? Five? Six? Does she, does she even have a shelf that fits them all? I'm curious to see what is her next Hugo award-winning <laughs> story. And I'm um, even more excited to talk about it with y'all. So until then...